Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who sat in a rather sunny autumnal bay area. Today, I'm joined by Alice Slate of the Echo Chamber Club in Kent, somewhere in Kent. It's a, it's a deep secret, folks. And by Amanda Marquardt of Salon in Brooklyn in New York. Say hello. Hello. In a week that has seen the Austrian EU presidency propose a special Brexit summit in November, we ask, what does Kavanaugh's Me Too moment say about sexual politics and power in America? Let me just say right at the outset, I believe Dr. Ford, I believe the survivor here, there's every reason to believe her. She has come forward courageously and bravely, knowing that she would face a nightmare of hostile and vicious scrutiny and challenge. We should not be rushing to judgment with a sham hearing on Monday. There are corroborating witnesses, and they too must be called, including Mark Judge, who was allegedly in the room, and the therapist who counseled Dr. Blasey Ford in 2012, and other expert witnesses who would both be an expert in sexual assault and crimes, trauma, and PTSD associated with the survivor being attacked. It is shameful that the Senate Judiciary Committee plans on repeating the ugly piece of history by doing to Dr. Blasey Ford exactly what they did to Anita Hill by putting her on the stand alone. What are they afraid of getting? Are they afraid of the truth? Amanda, um, Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation seemed all but certain and is now cast in doubt after... Christine Baisley Ford's allegations of sexual impropriety when they were teenagers. You've written a piece in Salon today. What does um, this conflation of sexual impropriety and power say about America in 2018 in light of the Me Too movement? That's a big question. Um, 
You know, I think there's a number of things going on here. Um, I think that the main reason that we're seeing what we're seeing in the States, which is this dramatic reaction from the right. Um, and as I say in my piece, what becomes incredibly clear right away is that they don't know what the truth of these allegations are. They don't care what the truth of these allegations are. They just are flat out doing an all out smear campaign against this accuser with absolutely no evidence one way or another about her credibility. It's just predetermined. She's going to be slammed as a liar. She's going to be eviscerated in the press. I but, think. But Amanda, wouldn't they say that that's the whole kind of point that you said? There's no evidence against uh, the accuser. There's no evidence for it per se, is there? That's what they would say. That's what they would say. That would be wrong. There is actually evidence for the accusations. Um, Again, we don't have a lot. Um, We have the fact that she was talking about this in therapy um, at least six years ago. There's, there's therapist notes that prove this. So there is some evidence. Um, there is a significant amount of evidence that the the two young men that she accused were, in fact, big-time drinking buddies in high school. Um, it's all over the yearbook profile. And, you know, there's things like that. Um, so I think there is some evidence. You know, the real question here is whether or not the Republicans are curious about the truth of the matter at all. And the answer is no whether it's true or not is utterly irrelevant to their reaction. I think, you know, even if there was a videotape, we would probably be seeing some kind of the same, just, I would say almost panicked desire to just shut this woman up, make this go away to, to discredit her without even giving it a fair hearing, despite some posturing on to the contrary. And I think there's a couple things going on here. One is which, the Republicans have been trying to remake the Supreme Court for four decades now, so that it has a five-vote majority against abortion rights and on some other issues that they have just never been able to really get a five-vote majority on. And this is their chance, and they don't want to blow it. And the other thing, I think, is that the Me Too movement's been going on for at least a year now, you know, probably I'd say a year for real and then kind of two years going back to Donald Trump's uh, Access Hollywood tape where he was caught bragging about a sexual assault. And Republicans, I think, and conservatives are at a panic point. You've heard a lot of men say some variation on the idea that if this if this woman gets a fair hearing, if this accusation results in consequences then who's next? There's never going to be an end to this. And like, I think that that's a very real fear that they're had. There's been a lot of men who have lost their jobs, have been exposed publicly for sexual harassment or assault. And I think for a lot of men that um, haven't been exposed that way, but perhaps have skeletons in their closets, the fear that this is never going to stop, that they are going to be exposed is getting pretty serious. And, and I think what we're seeing a, a lot is this desire to just st- shut it down now to make women feel like this has gone too far and it's time to start being silent again. Amanda, is it fair to say all Republicans are 
somewhat damning about these allegations because Senator Susan Collins has actually said that if the nominee Brett Kavanaugh has lied about uh, sexual allegations against him in high school, they're disqualifying. So that in and of itself is some kind of small but significant uh, victory for the Me Too movement, isn't it? If he says it would be disqualifying, she is a Republican senator. I was super glad to see Susan Collins commit to that because that's a pretty clear commitment She's real devious. <laughs> There's no other way to put that. She um she is also committed to the idea that she would not vote for a, a judge that would overturn Roe versus Wade and end protections for abortion rights in this country. But she was about to do that by voting for Kavanaugh, and she basically was dishonest in explaining her reasoning. She said she didn't think he was going to do that. Well, I mean. That's a flatly ridiculous thing to say, and I, I don't believe that anyone is that stupid, much less Su- Susan Collins. On the other hand, there is evidence that, you know, the fact that she has been sort of requiring the Republican Party to give her cover on the abortion rights issue shows that she is sensitive to the idea that her voters could punish her for just flat out lying to them about this stuff. So, Her saying that she takes it seriously is good. It also raises my concern that that the allegedly rescheduled or the allegedly scheduled hearing that's supposed to happen next week where they're going to hash this stuff out in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I'm concerned that it's going to create an incentive for the Judiciary Committee, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee to basically make it a kangaroo court to make it more about discrediting this woman than giving it a fair hearing because their only purpose is giving Susan Collins cover to say that she doesn't know or that she doesn't believe this woman. All right, so we're going to come back onto that because I I, I can't see how after Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill back in 1991 that this could be anything but some kind of a rigorous hearing. But Alice, I'm going to bring you into this. If 65 women have come forward to defend Kavanaugh as a good person amid allegation shouldn't we just move on as this proves good character as an adult is, is this the letter right amanda this is the letter that that um he kind of carries around with him just in case there was a sexual assault like accusation yeah yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i've seen i've seen a lot of this on twitter it is it is it is it is one of these things where it's like a you can see it from like it's you can see it from both sides. So it's kind of dubious to be carrying around this letter as, as, as Twitter has kind of commented, like who feels the need to do that other than someone who's guilty. Um, but 65 women is a lot, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, kind, I'm, I'm finding it weird just kind of reading at the same time, but I, uh, I don't think we should move on. I don't think that that necessarily proves anything. I think that, yeah, in the Me Too era, there has been a lot of, um, justice that's done by the press right and i think that most people on most sides say that this isn't a very good system moving forward we can't have a shaming as being an accusation of whether something's true guilty or not guilty likewise this does seem kind of like a move to try and prove in some way by having uh, something that's media savvy and media friendly a, a way of saying i'm not guilty but i do think this should go through the courts right and that's that's kind of what amanda was talking about before so no we definitely shouldn't move on uh, but it's an interesting development. If a man in public life admits to past transgressions of this ilk, we're not talking about rape, but it is a sexual assault. And he said it happened years ago when he was a teenager. 
can he maintain his place in high office if he says i did this i'm a different person now or are we living in a time where any allegation or you admit anything of this type and buddy you're out of there so this this is really because this is exactly what i was actually talking about today i've been reading a lot of philosophy today i've been reading a lot of chomsky today and i've I've been reviewing ideas around personal identity there's a lot of philosophical questions over whether or not you you can punish something someone for something that happened a very very long time ago especially if they were a child at the time and if i'm honest i think that if someone said i admit in the past in like a different time in in the late 70s or the early 80s i did something that i am so ashamed of and i recognize it now as being truly truly wrong and this is my version of the events it corroborates entirely with what this person has accused me of I think there is something actually quite, I mean, you can still say you shouldn't have done that at the time. There's something very admirable about doing that now, that kind of insane honesty. And I do think that we all have skeletons in our closet, whether or not they're related to sexual assault. I mean, I'm 28 and I definitely have things that I am so ashamed about saying um, in 2008 when I was a student, um, the sort of thing that I am still not really happy to kind of bring up in kind of a public forum, but I kind of think about and I think about like previous racism and um, previous kind of misogyny that I've definitely exposed. Everyone has skeletons in their closet, particularly in a time of, of huge reform. And I think that admitting those things is worthy of admiration. Does that mean that they can then be in office? Well, I think it, you can do it on a case by case basis. I think that the issue with this Kavanaugh thing is that we are currently seeing the worst of Western politics, right? So I was doing some reading on CNN and on Vox today, and it seemed like one of the biggest things about Kavanaugh is that he said Congress might consider a law exempting a president while in office from criminal prosecution and investigation. And that to me is just a massive, massive red flag. And I'm I'm assuming it is for most Democrats as well. And then you kind of go, well, what can you do to make sure this person never makes it into the Supreme Court? And there is this allegation. It seems to me, well, Vox was reporting it, that Ford originally went through kind of official channels and then it was leaked to the press which meant that she then had to go to the Washington Post so this was made a kind of a kind of a me too movement type thing in a way that Ford didn't necessarily want right so there are some big problems around Mm. what Kavanaugh has done I also think there are some question marks over the way the Democrats have handled this but I guess I understand because Kavanaugh doesn't seem to me to be a great nominee I mean we've already mentioned abortion rights I, I do think that everyone does have skeletons in their closet to an extent being honest about those things should create a, a more transparent politics, right? Whether or not, like, it depends on it depends on the allegation, it depends on what they did, and it depends on the position in office that they're being put forward for. But yeah, I do think that in answer to your question, that there there should be something there that makes you go, okay, you know, it's forgiveness, right? Which is kind of at the heart of Western thought as well, or at least of religious thought, and that's important. Mm-hmm. Amanda, skeletons in your closet. This is the time for you to uh, absolve yourself of any past misdeeds, madam. Uh, go for it. I will echo Brett Kavanaugh, but I think I'm more likely to be telling the truth here. I categorically deny any sexual assaults I may have committed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that... There is one bit where us us lefties, us liberals have to hold our hands up to a certain level of hypocrisy. When it comes to, let's say, good old fashioned criminal uh, misdeeds, which, uh, let's say, working class people, people of colour, etc. have been caught up in. We seem to be very big on redemption then. 
not just saying that it's three strikes that and you're out um, the rule that you have in America per se, and that it shouldn't necessarily follow them for the rest of their lives, etc. It does appear that specifically within in this sphere that we struggle, however long uh, that transgression was actually been uh, has actually taken place to have the the same kind of level of forgiveness is the wrong word, but just to say, well, you know, have your mea culpa and atone, 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 and then just say this person's kind of come through it. But moving on from that, it's purely just just a thought which just kind of came into my head. Obviously, Amanda, this does have echoes of Anita Hill back in 1991, which we did kind of touch on before. In hindsight, and it's a very hard thing for me actually to ask, but hell, I'm just going to ask it. In hindsight, which do you think is going to be more significant for American politics? And then also for American society and American mores and the way that it kind of sees itself and how Americans conduct themselves with each other. Do you think it's going to be Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill in 1991 or the Me Too movement? And there's two distinct things. It's the, there's the political aspect, the fact that you had all these men and white men haranguing this woman back in 1991. And then you have, at least on the Republican side of the Judicial Committee, um, a whole load of men again, but it's not quite the same on the Democratic side. So uh, give us a sense of that, which is going to be, um, let's say, viewed in 2050 as more significant. And then what does it say about American politics and the position of the parties kind of, kind of quite now, right now, sorry? Well, I, I'm, I'm not a um, prophet, so I can't really say like how it's going to shake out in the end in terms of like historical importance. What I can say now is that I, I agree with Anita Hill, um, who has been speaking publicly this week about all this, and she is actually kind of optimistic, which I know probably surprises some people. She feels like we've actually progressed as a society, and I think that she's not wrong to say that, which is, I think most of us forget exactly how bad she was treated by the Judiciary Committee in 1991. Rachel Maddow just ran lengthy clips from it the other night just to sort of remind people, you know, how she was accused of being crazy and a liar and in love with Clarence Thomas and all sorts of stuff to her face, just crazy stuff. And she just had to have the forbearance to just put up with it. I think that nowadays, um, even the Republican men are somewhat wary of being that overt. And like you said, on the Democratic side, we've got a completely different story going on. Like a lot of the Democratic men back then were also eager to make Anita Hill go away. They, they, they really saw this more as a man versus woman thing than a Democrat versus Republican thing. And which is unfortunate because, you know, I think a lot of men also disagree with sexual harassment, <laughs> um, you know, but I think what we're going to see is you're going to see women like Amy Klobacher and Kamala Harris and Senator Hirono really get after this, this question. And they're really going to, to ask pointed, important questions. And I think that just didn't happen before. And I think you're going to see consensus on the Democratic side that this is serious and it should be taken seriously, which you didn't get in 1991. And I think possibly most importantly, you're going to see a press reaction that is very different. Like when Republicans inevitably act like sexist, condescending asses to Dr. Ford, 
the response in the media, I suspect, is going to be very critical, which did not happen in 1991. So, Amanda, what happens if the confirmation of Kavanaugh fails? Will the Republicans find a new nominee before Election Day? Um, Yeah, they could. um, And they could also get a new nominee confirmed between Election Day and when um, the Senate and House is sworn in in January. They basically have till the end of December to get this done if they want to with the current makeup of the Congress that they have now. Um, I will say it becomes harder um, for the Senate to get business done after an election sometimes because... Um, a lot of people in the Senate want to go home for the holiday. <laughs> um, never underestimate when it comes to DC politics, um, how much power there is for the Senate in wanting to just go home to their families for the holiday. And I think this might be something that is more of an issue in the United States than it is in the UK because of just the sheer distance that people are from home here and how little time they get to spend at home or get, you know, when they're in office. But I I think that there's a couple of reasons that the Republicans are not pulling Kavanaugh and yet and trying to find somebody quickly. And I think one is that any kind of loss is just bad politics. It makes you look weak. It would be right before an election, which they would have a concern that that would drive down voter turnout on their side. Um, I think their other concern, if I'm being honest, is the one that's been voiced by a lot of men, some anonymously, some not, which is that if Kavanaugh is held accountable for this, then, quote unquote, anyone (laughs) could get in trouble, (laughs) which is to say, I think that we have to remember that the Republicans, their president is on tape bragging about sexual assault. They have very serious concerns about what happens if we start holding men accountable. Like, is Trump next? I think that's what they're worried about. I think he's worried about that. And I think that they, they're starting to feel that they need to hold the line on this or else it's going to just be every man who's done something like this could get in trouble for it. Unless maybe they, they they start admitting things before, you know, we turn like the media into like this sort of Catholic confessional. Conf- yeah, exactly. Yeah. A confessional booth. That would be quite something, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, w- that would be amazing. I, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, I've, I've heard some people say, and maybe they have a point that we should just maybe just stop electing men put a pin in this for a while like till we get it all figured out as trump would say yeah radical feminism i i was more thinking like a gun amnesty though you could have like a week where everyone could just reveal their sexual assault right you could have like a sexual assault amnesty where you like document everything and you just say exactly how it is and if you divert from the truth in any sort of way then you'll get penalized later and that would be the craziest week (laughs) men wouldn't do it and i'll tell you why wives (laughs) wives <laughs> right they don't right, want their wives right, yeah. No. <laughs> right um yeah no I can understand why it might not work but I'm just like putting it forward as an idea <laughs> I, I like it I would back it up if it if if, if it actually worked I would I would be for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's do it me and you <laughs> I think there would be some other feminists who would have real problems with it though so we've oh <laughs> Roy feels just typing at us <laughs> I think you might want us to move on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
listener, by the time you hear this podcast, I will have edited it together so well that you won't realise it's been a total dog's dinner in terms of recording. Now, that great backwards and forwards that you had from Amanda and Alice was quite simply because I wasn't part of it. So it proves right, that men completely are disposable and completely dispensable because quite simply the best bit of the show is when I wasn't on it so I don't know what that says for me going forward as being the host of this show but maybe I should just like throw this out to the pundits and just let them do it and just retire back to being in uh, in the Bay Area with my pipe and slippers. Hello and welcome to the things that made England I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to bite on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism, and, well, hideous racist and far-right views, and it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The London Mayor Sadiq Khan is calling for another referendum on Britain's European Union membership. He says the Prime Minister's handling of Brexit negotiations has become mired in confusion and deadlock and was leading the country down a damaging path. Britain's due to leave the bloc next March. Unfortunately, we're at a position now where the government's embarking on negotiations that are going to lead to one of two things, either uh, a bad deal and that includes the possibility of us leaving the EU without knowing the future relationship with the European Union, or no deal. And both those options would be deeply damaging to London and uh, the country. So what I'm saying to the government is for the first time, the British public should have a say on the outcome of those negotiations, including the option of staying in the EU. Prime Minister Theresa May has repeatedly ruled out a second referendum. She says members of Parliament will get to vote on whether to accept any final deal. Meanwhile, Michael Gove thinks her plan, agreed at Chequers in July, is the right one for the moment. It was, it was interesting and troubling that he wants essentially to frustrate the vote that we had two and a half years ago. People voted clearly, 17.4 million people voted to leave the European Union. And Sadiq is essentially saying, stop Let's delay that whole process. Let's throw it into chaos. And I think that would be a profound mistake. Anti-Brexit protesters in Dover continue to demonstrate with the thought of chaos that there's a disorderly Brexit with Dover being the lifeline for the economy. But with the months ticking by for London and Brussels to thrash out a deal, Britain's preparing plans for a no-deal Brexit. With the Treasury Secretary Mel Stride admitting that the rejection of Theresa May's Chequers plan could trigger a second referendum and halt Brexit altogether, Alice, can us Remainers see light at the end of the long Brexit tunnel? Oh my gosh, what a question. So, so I am back in Kent, right? So I'm not living in a, in a city at all at the moment. And it has been quite interesting mm-hmm. being here and realising just how the kind of sentiment towards Brexit isn't necessarily just going towards Remain. I have to say I do sympathise with this, who are pretty pissed off that there is no way of leaving the EU, given that it's supposed to be a democratic system. Um, and they are pretty pissed off about the EU's behaviour throughout all of this. So that that's one point that I'd like to make. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. It's just that... Right. And you please stand up for the good people of Kent. <laughs> yeah, I don't was, want to represent um, everyone. Uh, definitely a leave county in the UK. Yeah. But how can anybody seriously be upset with the actions of the EU in the negotiations for us to leave? Quite simply, if they give us a great deal in inverted commas, whatever the heck that is, the EU falls to pieces around its ears, so to speak. By definition, they have to look after the interests of the EU. It's not in their interest to look after the interests of the United Kingdom, considering we've decided to leave. Sure, but that's so political, right? Seems- that's a political reason. But I, I totally do sympathise with the idea that if we do live in a democracy and you do join kind of an entity, a political entity, there should be procedures in place to to leave and it shouldn't just be something which but, one but, there, but but there is a but there is a procedure to leave there there is that article uh, which we've invoked to leave when when you speak to leavers 
and I know you are not a lever, but you but you said you sat in Kent, so you represented. Well, I said I said I'm not representing them, and I don't think I'll be able to adequately represent them. But um, it's. All, all, all I'm doing is all I'm doing is trying to feed back the idea because you know, Theresa May wrote in the Express okay. today about the fact that if there is another referendum, mm-hmm. then there'll be no more trust in politicians. And yes, it was in the Express, which has always been a fervently leave paper. But I'm just saying that I I do understand that point, given the vantage point that I'm at right now. There are people who still do want to leave, and there are people who voted Remain who are starting to kind of shift over to the leave side of things. And yeah, this isn't kind of like a poll or a study or anything. This is just my anecdotal evidence. But I don't think that we can firmly say if there is a leavers vote that there is light at the end, a people's vote, a leavers vote, a people's vote that there is light at the end of the tunnel for Remainers. Instead, we should just be trying to like think about what's democratically sound and what is going to be to our interest, because it could just be that there is vote leave twice. And then and then what do we do? Uh, we leave. <laughs> yeah. and, and we crash out. Right. But ju- just before we come on to that, because we can talk um, philosophically um, about this kind of going forward, I just do want to include Amanda on this because a report has identified half a dozen openings for us supporters of a people's vote. The mechanism which will give the public a final say as to whether Britain leaves the EU or how we leave the EU. But Amanda, why aren't referendums or props? Uh, I know in California, where I am at the moment, there's always a, there's always a prop on any kind of ballot paper. Why aren't they ever conducted nationwide in the United States? And why is it that only of some states seem to have this mechanism of the voters voting on specific issues? There's literally no way for the United States government to put that kind of thing on a ballot. Uh, We're just not organized in the same way. The balance of power between the states and the federal government is very different. Uh, There's no mechanism to have a national referendum. I suppose Congress could pass such a law, but I don't think such a thing would be very popular in the United States. It's not culturally useful here with so much of the issues, the kinds of issues that get put on referendums being much more the sort of thing that is handled at the state level or the local level. Um, It's interesting you say that because I would say even though we have had referendum in the UK, very obviously the Brexit one, Scottish vote of independence, us going into the EU was ratified in 1975 after we'd actually joined. But actually, culturally, it's not something we go in for. You know, Britain is not Switzerland. When the government calls for a referendum of, of any sort, it's almost like um, like a solar eclipse. It doesn't happen that often. And as I say, I, I can only think of three previous times. Two two before this where it's totally nationwide so um but it's just an interesting thought when i actually actually kind of doing this and i suppose in the united states is this would this be seen as the federal government usurping states rights in that way that's the reason why it doesn't happen in nationwide yeah and i i think um you know it's probably for the best that we don't because you know you look at brexit as a really good example of how this (laughs) can go sideways (laughs) Um, Very specifically, I I could see it immediately that the Republicans in the United States would exploit it to 
have referendums on issues early in their public discourse cycle so that they could forestall progressive gains. If, um, and that I, that's a lot of big words. But like, for instance, if we had national referendums, I could have seen like in 2006, Republicans putting gay marriage on a national referendum, getting it shot down by popular vote. And then then there would be no way to legalize it down the road as more people began to realize that that was actually a human rights issue. So I'm, that is a very good point. I'm super glad we don't do that. Moving more slowly on the federal level has a lot of advantages that progressives, I think, need to be you know apprised of. Mm, that's an absolutely an excellent point. And it's one of the things that people do actually say about referendum is that it's absolutely just a snapshot in time and you need to be able to go back and to revisit that. And there is something about having a referendum which almost feels like the results will be chiselled in stone well, because the people... It's more that it's, it's not a mandate for anything, is it? Any sort of vote when it's done by people, like 77 million people in, in the UK, so let's say 40 million of them voted. I actually don't know the numbers, I probably should. 17 million um, voted for 17 million yeah so how you know i i can't speak to every single one of those people i bet there were hundreds of different reasons why people voted for various different things i reckon people voted for different for vote and for leave who had exactly the same reasons for voting for, for a vote or for leave they just had different information and mm. and this is the thing about referendums about voting in general is that quite often you're not actually given a mandate by the people because the people there is no such thing as kind of collected collective will in the sense that we've all kind of come together and we've all got this one idea to pass on to government it's much more complex than that and yet politicians consistently interpret these things as mandates because they have to because that's legitimacy right so that's the way that they give legitimacy to the power and the laws that they then pass on to everyone else so that's just the issue with voting in general And, and I am a fan of a representative democracy because you can elect representatives who then can speak to each other and can come to terms with what is the best way forward and actually have some form of deliberation. So I I completely agree. I I really don't think there should have been a referendum in the first place. And one of the reasons why I'm kind of a bit lackluster about a people's vote again is A, because I think it could be leave again. And B, because I I, I do believe in a representative democracy rather than a direct democracy. Absolutely agree. And and you've seen um, historically where direct democracies do end up with dictatorships because it's very easy to manipulate the people that way. But Switzerland seems to manage itself rather well. But now... Well, but women didn't get the vote there till like 71 because of direct voting on the issue. So, you know, really? again, that is Amanda Marcotte and most excellent <laughs> point. Who is the prime minister or the president of Switzerland? Nobody knows. Even the Swiss don't know. And, and that, it's a true fact because of the, the, the way that that country is actually kind of structured. Incred- incredibly I decentralized enjoyed, uh, and with its canton states of governments and its referendum on everything. Referenda on everything. Let's move back on to good old Blighty. Because we're going to slightly come to, to blows, I think, uh, today, which is good. I always come to blows and interview in With BMW's Cowley and set to close for a month to minimise the impact of supply distribution if there is no deal on Brexit. We've got Honda saying that a no-deal Brexit would cost them tens of millions. Jaguar and Land Rover saying it's moving 2,000 of its staff 
from its Castle Bromwich plant, uh, moving on to a three-day week until Christmas, citing Brexit uncertainty. I obviously formulate this question before you gave your last answer. You feel that there is no popular demand for a new vote to end the kind of constant Brexit wrangling. You sat in Kent. How do people actually process? And I know you are not a Brexiteer, but you need to channel this because... I'm the, I'm the other side of the planet, quite literally. So you get to be yourself and I get to pretend I'm someone else in this well, debate. Well, you, you have to try and make sense out of this for me because so, so with, no, within, with this litany, one minute, like with this litany yeah. of economic woes from companies that just want to make a buck, strictly speaking, they do not care whether we're in or out of the EU. They just want to make money. But they look at the facts, the stark facts that with no deal on tariffs and importation of goods, et cetera, et cetera, not being part of the customs union. Forget, we're not even talking about the single market and movement of people. This will disrupt business. So they say, this is bad. And it being bad for business means that people will not have jobs or this is going to be economic uncertainty. How can people be gung-ho for this abstract notion of sovereignty. But did you did, did you read Spiked? Did you read Spiked? I think it was today or maybe it was yesterday. Didn't read it. Spiked, Spiked is it kind say? of like one of these Spiked's one of these publications, right, that advocates freedom of speech but doesn't let anyone write who might uh, who might say that freedom of speech isn't always great. So it's mm-hmm. it's kind of one of these internal like paradoxes that just doesn't come to the fore. So it's always been pro Brexit. It's always been pro Brexit based on constitutional reasons. Mm-hmm. And they keep on hammering home this kind of point that I was saying about the fact that how can something like the EU exist when there is no easy way out? How can that be democratic? What does sovereignty look like? And for a lot of people, we all have our axioms and we all have our values. Our values are different to things around sovereignty, around free will, um, which are these traditionally more kind of right-wing ideas of freedom, because I don't really see how they're plausible from a philosophical perspective. I think that standing up for your values in that kind of way is an admirable thing. And I know that I'm not arguing for like an absolutist ideology or anything like that. You can only stand up for these types of principles if you've got the economic where for all to to be safe. This is when I'm kind of out. I can't argue argue this because I agree. I want to live in a world where it's really easy for me to live in great accommodation and be able to... No, 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 that's not not the point I was going to make. No, but it's about about economic security. It's about like whether or not we're going to have lives that are worth, are better than they were before, right? That's that's what the economics of it is, is are we going to have jobs that, um, that can then pay for our families? Is this going to contribute to the economy? I suppose. And, and, and to be honest, mm. the, the, the Remainers have always been stronger on this point, but it just doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Well, you can only kind of go, well, it's probably that people's values are different to the values that you're appealing to through this. And why that is, I, I can't argue that. All right. Okay. I, can okay. Uh, I suppose the question for me anyway comes down quite simply to this. If we have three years worth of economic dislocation, is that worth coming out of the EU? If we have 10 years of economic dislocation, is it worth coming out of the EU? Is it 50 years? As Jacob Rees-Mogg admitted a month ago, he says it could be 50 years before we see the economic benefits of Brexit, then is it worth it? So we so we waste two and a half generations of, of British lives economically. Well, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm going to say no, because like I said already, you know, I'm 28 and that's me and my kids, right? So I'm going to just say no. 
but for some people only they for don't see the it like rich that. only for people with gilt edge pensions who actually do not care about whether employment goes up from what current 3% to 15 18 well, percent as it was in, in case, the early 1980s because let, they're cushy anyway. let's have a people's vote then then three percent of people will vote leave and then the rest of the 97 percent will vote remain there's no issue according to that logic you have to you have to wind, wind that back how do we get to a position whereby such a second referendum whether it's a people's vote or an election in effect, fought on the Chequers plan can be can be staged. That, for me, is the most significant question. And, and kind of we're having this conversation a few days before the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. And oh, as if that's going to shed some light on it. Okay, tell me why it's not. <laughs> tell me why it's not. We've got we've got momentum saying they're not going to block questions on Brexit and a record amount of questions and propositions have been shared all about Brexit. So tell me why that is going to not move the Brexit needle one inch either way. Have you have you looked at Jeremy Corbyn's Twitter feed recently? There is uh, not uh, a single a single thing on that from about Brexit at all. Not a single thing. As long as the the leader of the Labour Party remains to Jeremy Corbyn, I really can't see Labour coming forward and and saying anything substantial on this issue. Again, I'm not a prophet either. 150 motions submitted for the Labour Party conference around Brexit. 150. He cannot stop this torrent of popular sentiment forever and if momentum is saying you know fuck it okay we're going to talk about it and the unions are saying we support some kind of second referendum because of the economic chaos which we're going to plunge the country the country into how can he say no to that how can he continue well, to ignore that the I'm popular just, will of Labour I'm just basing members? this on what I've seen of Jeremy Corbyn for the last mm-hmm. couple of years right Whenever there's a crisis like this, he tends to ignore it. He ignores it. He ignores it. He ignores it. He then comes out with some weird statement saying that he acknowledges the issue and then he ignores it again. That's what I've seen. That's what we saw as part of the anti-Semitism allegations that were put against the Labour Party. And and that's what we've consistently seen in his PMQs, the Prime Minister's questions. I'd be shocked, but I'm happy to be wrong. And that would change something if the Labour Party did come forward and say they were going to start advocating for a people's vote. But like I've already said, I'm a bit lacklustre myself over a people's vote because I believe in representative democracy. Mm. Um, no, I think representative democracy, uh, the theory and the practice has definitely got a shot in the arm because of this, all this Brexit nonsense. Uh, just again with you, Miss Thwaite, because I'm enjoying our <laughs> knockabout fun that we're having at the moment. <laughs> right, let's just imagine that there is a second uh, referendum. What? Are the choices going to be? Is it going to be as as Alistair Campbell says? It's either no Brexit or no deal. This is so political, isn't it? I know. I know it's a political show, <laughs> but this this in particular is pretty political because there's been no deal, checkers deal, or no Brexit. Right. Mm. In which case, has, no has to be a binary choice, doesn't it? It's exactly, a case of exactly. we, we remain or no deal, I, I, I suppose. But I suppose if you put it unless, as no Brexit or no like deal. A, yeah, but if you do something a bit like you could have first and second preferences, would that change things? How? Probably not according to any system that I know of. 
well, that your first preference would be the Czechist deal and the second preference would be no Brexit, for instance. So, but I can't actually think of any because that'd be... I, so I, I, I think you'd have to have three, wouldn't you? You'd have to say we remain as we are, the checkers deal, and then there is no deal. And you're saying, but there's you no have way that any lever will agree to that. There's no way that any lever would agree to a three-way referendum for All the right, pure so reason that that will mean how, the Remainers will what, win. What are the options on that ballot paper? What are they? I like I say, I'm not. I don't like the idea. So I don't know. I think that they're all bad ideas. All right. Um, so according to you, Parliament is going to find its backbone emboldened no, by the no, various no, parties. I, I, <laughs> no, I think we're doomed. But I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that the people's vote is necessarily going to help. And I do kind of object to it on, on these kind of democratic principles that I personally hold. If there is a people's vote, of course, I'll then vote. But... Yeah, I can't see I can't see a nice little way out of this, to be honest. Amanda, I am a student of American history and I'm furiously and I'm sure I've put this question maybe to you or to an American pundit on this show before. But I just can't think right now. Has there ever been or not has there ever been? Let's take things like Watergate out of it. Has there been a constitutional forward slash political paralysis in the American system, which has come anywhere near what we're um, suffering at the moment. And and let's, uh, I won't say the, the American Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> right. that, that one comes to mind. <laughs> that, 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 that was pretty great. But let's say, let's say in the last 150 years, whereby literally the business of government was all consumed in peacetime by one issue. Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I mean, we've had a couple of government shutdowns over budget questions, right? The most notorious being in the 90s, and then there was a more recent one. But Uh, those get resolved in, you know, and it's grandstanding, isn't it, ultimately? It's some senator somewhere saying, I want more spending on this pork barrel scheme in my state. You're not giving it to me, blah, blah, blah. Well, and they were trying to defund Planned Parenthood. And, yeah, I mean, but, yeah. I, um, I think that I'm not a big student of history as a historian probably would know better, but I do think that FDR's attempts to create the new deal was a showstopper in the thirties. Um, he ended up having to, he ended up trying to enact a court packing scheme that failed. Um, there was, he basically tried to remake government so that he could get, you know, basic social safety net programs passed and and almost failed. So there is that. But, you know, that's as close as it gets. Maybe the Vietnam War. (laughs) But yeah. But yeah. But again, that has the the war. war. Nothing like this where every it seems like it has its fingers in literally every part of British politics. Mm, Absolutely. Apart from Jeremy Corbyn's politics. That's where it does not have any fingers at all. <laughs> I I think we should revisit this, the, the three of us, after the Tory Party conference and we see the, the new the new lay of the land because 
I have a sneaky feeling that they, the, the, the Labour Party conference will be much more rancorous than we actually think, regardless of Corbyn's Europhobic sentiments yeah. and stuff that actually the groundswell of opinion saying that actually we can attain power. And Polly Toynbee has a, a great article in The Guardian saying that the Labour Party is so close to attaining power, it needs to shift its position on Brexit. And that could well happen. And then we have the Tories. And whatever they're going to do is going to be somewhat spectacular with the European research group of, of MPs um, full-throated in their support of of Johnson and whatever he stands up to say is going to be seismic you know because he has the ability to absolutely nobble Theresa May so so maybe we should um, shelf our talk on any kind of uh, second referendum and see where we are in approximately 10 days time and on that point it's been good sparring with you, Alice Thwaite, even though you weren't quite uh, the person from Kent that I hoped you to be, full-throated <laughs> in your Brexiteer sentiment. We'll go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time where we put politics to one side and we just talk about nice stuff. And I'm going to go over to you in hip Brooklyn, Amanda Marquardt, and go to you first. Oh, by the way, Amanda, I'm going to be in New York in November. So hopefully you'll be able to buy me that drink you've been promising me for all these months. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Amanda, uh, you first. What's been your takeaway the last seven days? Um, you know, I think uh, I finished watching uh, the show, the Hulu show Castle Rock, Um I don't know. It, I think it, it's entertaining if you're the fan of a, that Stephen King style supernatural horror. Um, if you're not, if you think that stuff is preposterous, you won't enjoy it. But man, that was a, a good show and it was scary. And it, it showed, it's a reminder to me that horror movies, horror TV shows don't have to like overly rely on gross out and gore to get the scares. It, it, it genuinely was terrifying without having what a, a whole lot of gore in it. And so what's the premise of Castle Rock? It's a, it's a tough premise. Um, it's actually kind of takes place in the, in the universe of the Stephen King novels, which kind of have a, a common universe in them. Um, mm -hmm. In, you know, the sort of main town where a lot of the, a lot of the books of his take place. And it kind of explores the idea that a lot of this kind of murder and mayhem might have a almost demonic cause and it follows some characters as they try to figure out if that's actually the case and if they can do anything about it. I, I can't say any more without spoiling, though. It's, it's a very strange show with a, a lost level convoluted plot, but, but really entertaining. I've been watching... Ozark. I was introduced to it um, just about two, three days ago, and it. The premise of that is that uh, Matthew Bateman is a plays a financial advisor who, um, from the outside, looks incredibly white picket fence, squeaky clean, uh, but actually has been laundering money for Mexican drug cartels for years. And uh, they catch up with the fact that his partner has been diddling them, has been screwing them over. 
and they just brutally murder him. And they're going to do the same to Matthew Bateman, but they give him one last chance. And he decides to go to the Ozarks to, to launder their money. And it is absolutely fascinating. It has echoes of Breaking Bad in that the protagonist is actually an antagonist. He's a bad guy, but he's the least bad guy in effect. And you understand his motivation as the reason why he has to do these seemingly bad things and, and actually be on the wrong side of the law whilst having this uh, urbane, civilised, uh, cookie-cutter face, so to speak. And, but it's also an, an interesting study of uh, kind of American kind of cultural mores. And I am about to embark on a drive up middle America visiting presidential libraries. So for me to see this little bit of a slice of... Uh, America, small town America. Are you, um, are you going to Austin? I start in Austin. Oh, so you're going to go to the LBJ Library? It's uh-huh. all downhill. That's after, the first place. It's all go. downhill after the LBJ <laughs> Library. It is the best presidential library. Why There's so? an animatronic LBJ in there that tells stupid, dirty jokes. <laughs> Fantastic. And don't, but does he sit on the toilet whilst talking to you as well? Which is what he was famous for doing, wasn't he? LBJ? They don't go that far, and it's and the jokes are—they're just corny, really. But no, he's—if I recall correctly—he's leaning on a picket fence, uh, mm-hmm. or not a picket fence, like a ranch-style fence. So um, he was notorious for telling really corny jokes, and so they, they really highlight that at the, <laughs> the library. It's great for other reasons, but that's the that's the most 1960s thing in it. It, it really just feels like Disneyland in that way. Um, which presidential library should I avoid visiting? You just say, oh, damn. I've, I've heard that the George Bush one is boring. Both both Bush libraries? No, the first Bush library. I don't know anything about the second Bush library. Hmm. Right, I'm going to take take that under advisement. That that's, it sounds to me like very, very good advice. So I start at the LBJ one. The second one is supposed to be the George Bush Library. And then the third one is his son's. And then fourth, when I leave Texas, is Harriet Truman's in Arkansas. So, um, oh, and you can go to Bill Clinton's in Arkansas too. Oh, no, 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 no. Just Sorry. Truman's is in Kansas. Bill oh, Clinton's okay. is the next one in Arkansas. Sorry, I got those the wrong way around. So I've got this road trip all kind of planned out on Google Maps and stuff. And uh, and I end up, starting Austin, end up in Monticello to see the home of Jefferson. And then I'll nip over to Washington and then fly back to the Bay Area. If you are somewhat of a fan of American political history, why don't you check out my podcast, 10 American Presidents, and I talk about my trip there. And I will be podcasting from uh, various bits of um, small town America and from various presidential libraries. So look out for that. But anyway, getting back to my main part, which is Ozark, it's pretty cool. It doesn't have the comic turns of Breaking Bad. It is, this is a straight drama. It's not a dramedy at all. But Matthew Bateman is absolutely excellent. It's it's a great programme, a great premise. And yeah, give Ozark a go on Netflix. Now, Alice Waite... You, Shall I just do a show you, as well? Shall I do a show? You, you can do what, whatever you want, but I think that's a little bit lazy now. No, no. I, I've just, I'm just going to do I've, a show I've, I've as well. I'm listening to you guys, and I'm just like, I need to tell you about the, one of the greatest yeah. comedies that has come out this year. That right. It's very British. Okay. It's called Let's Flats, and it's available on uh, Channel 4, 4OD. I don't know if you're outside the UK where you can access it, but it's done by this guy called Jamie Dimitri, who I think is mm-hmm. so funny. 
he's kind of going onto this list of people that I really hope I never meet because I will fangirl so much and just be so horrendously embarrassing in front of him that, yeah, I, I can never meet him. But this, this comedy is all about this guy who comes from a Greek family and the family business is a letting agent and he is just so bad at his job. And, it, and you know, hilarity ensues. But um, it's kind of on the same level as Fleabag, I think, in terms of the comedy how in some ways it is slightly inaccessible um, and how it does kind of reveal quite interesting, profound truths about kind of British society. So uh, Staff Let's Flats, that's my recommendation. You know, until you said Fleabag, I was right behind it. I I couldn't quite get Fleabag. That's why I said it's slightly inaccessible, right? Like Fleabag divides and I think Staff Let's Flats also divides from what I've seen on Twitter. But, you know, you could be on the right side of the divide this time, Royfield. (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean this time <laughs> well you were brought last time flea bag you got it wrong that's fine this time you can get it right <laughs> flea bag was just so overblown oh no it was the greatest thing it was so good <laughs> it's hard to watch though it's that cringe comedy where you're it's like one episode and you're like ah it's so hard to watch more of this <laughs> i loved it well, I thought it was great. I'm going to give your recommendation a little bit of a go. If you promise, Alice, to give Ozark a go. Okay, I promise. I've got a lot of time on my hands now. I live in Kent. So, um, yeah, of course, I'll give it a go. Smashing. All right, well, that's been us, folks. This has been somewhat of a torturous recording. But by the time I've edited this, you're you're going to say, what's the problem? It sounded like a regular show to me. It's been anything but regular. Half the questions were typed to, to to our pundits and stuff. But thank you for bearing with us. Now, just before we go, it's the time where I say, Alice Thwaite, tell us how people can catch up with you on the social media. Just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alice L. Thwaite. Um, I'm at Alice L. Thwaite. <laughs> and are you working on anything interesting at the moment? Oh, nothing I can reveal, unfortunately. But um, maybe maybe next time on the show, I'll, I'll have some good news. Uh, but maybe not. You never know with these things. But uh, yeah, <laughs> follow me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, Amanda, how about you? Um, how can people find you on social media and then what are you working on? You can follow me at Amanda Marcotte, just my name, on Twitter. And I'm just, you know, writing and reporting, uh, doing a piece on, right now working on a piece on how to get some corruption out of D.C. politics. I also have an interview coming up with the last Democratic governor of Texas's campaign manager on whether or not Texas can never go blue again. So keep an eye out for that. And if you want to see tweets about me talking about selling my flat, my mom and dad, all my kids in Canada, feel free to follow me on Twitter because you'll get absolutely zero politics from me. Uh, if you follow me, which is quite simply at Royfield, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. And if you do want to meet me on my trip up Middle America, uh, join the 10 American President's Facebook group and you can uh, you can buy me a drink in some small town in America as I pass by or you can come along to the Sound Education Conference at Harvard on the 2nd of November where I'll be taking a panel talking about taking risks in podcasting. Oh, actually, sorry, you've just reminded me of something. I could actually plug an event that I'm putting on with Wed Roots Democracy. So the Echo Chamber Club is putting on our first event uh, on the 23rd of October in East London in Newspeak House. It's with Wed Roots Democracy and the title is Are We More Polarised Than Ever Before? 
And there's going to be me, who's going to be talking about my research in polarization, and also Kristen Mayer, who's, he's King's, I think he's a clinical um, psychologist, but I always get psychologists and psychiatrists mixed up. That's bad of me. But he, he's an expert as well in polarization and decision making. And we're hoping also to have a machine learning expert who's been trying to track down what polarization means on social media. So trying to add numbers to this kind of unquantifiable subject. So come along to that. It's on the 23rd of October. Brilliant. And don't forget, folks, you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show, though it's kind of tumbleweed there at the moment because I'm rubbish on, on, on social media. But yeah, if you want to just make me feel good for a moment, go follow us on that. Or even more important, you can write us a review on Apple Podcasts or on a podcatcher of your choice because it's quite important for you to do that because then it gets other people to know about the show. We'll see you all again soon. Don't forget, folks, we are the left of centre. Do good do the right thing types of people uh, because that's what you should do do right and do good by people there is no other way toodaloo see you all again soon bye bye oh you pair were (laughs) fucking awesome even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm.